Welcome back to the Muzzle Blast Podcast, the official podcast of the National Muzzleloading Rifle Association. This show is made possible by the members of the NMRA. Thank you. My name is uh, Eric Ewing. I'm uh, from Red Hook, New York, in the Hudson Valley area, and I am a uh, contemporary artist making mostly uh, leather leather bags, textile bags, in my own style. And we kind of came across uh, each other some on um, Instagram through the NMLRA back and forth. Just, I, I've got your page pulled up here and your bags are really, I guess the term I would use is kind of homespun that I've heard before. A lot of them I have that look, yeah. yeah. I, I try to kind of stay out of this one style of bag, but a lot of the bags I make, you know, I, it's my, it's just kind of style that is, is homespun, you know, using a lot of uh, homemade stuff that, with that look of like a, somebody kind of made it at home out of materials they had or, you know, ran over yeah <laughs> so what got you started in the kind of t- the traditional craft side of things have you always been interested in history and leather working i've always been in, yeah i've always been interested in uh history it was mostly uh, my mom was really into it and uh, since we were little kids she always took us to historical sites and um we watched a lot of like old black and white classic movies at home you know we were always somehow learning something she's kind of one of those people with like a million facts you know okay yeah but I'm kind of like that too, where you know, doing things about that, that are kind of like minutia about nothing, <laughs> a lot of historical stuff. Yeah, you know, that's kind of where I got a lot of my interest in history. I've always been an artist. I went to um, school of visual arts in Manhattan. I went, to, I went to art school. I really was kind of aimless at, with my art. I really never had like a. I, I was. I went. I went there for fine arts. You know, not everybody in fine arts becomes a famous artist. Obviously, you know, you, you kind of. A lot of people are directionless in it and yeah. just trying to figure out what it is you do. Um, I never really quite did. And at some point, I, when I moved uh, upstate out of New York City, I started uh, with like hunting and shooting. It was a way to kind of like wed those three things together, history, art, and the outdoors. One day, I, you know, I got my first footlock rifle and I needed a bag, obviously. Um, yeah. I started, I started trying to figure out, like, all right, let me, let me see what I can do for a bag. I looked online and there was like, you know, commercial commercially made shot bags available by different people and I was like, well, you know, they're really kind of dumb looking. And I started looking at historical ones and I was like, oh, those are cool. And I discovered the uh, Contemporary Makers blog. Oh, yeah. And that kind of, uh, that kind of did it for me. I was like, all right, let me make a bag. And I made my first bag, which was just like a fold over uh, bag that it's the one that everybody has made probably at some point. It's bags that Wallace Dressler, which is a you know, famous collector from Virginia, yeah. um, has in his collection, and everybody calls it the early Virginia bag. You know, I kind of was like, I did the same thing. I was like, this is my copy of the early Virginia bag. <laughs> you know, I used it, and uh, that was my first bag. And that was like, uh, since then, I probably made about 200 or so other bags and leather other things that are, you know, in that same discipline. So how um, how early after art school did you do your replication of the Wallace Gussler early Virginia bag? No, like at least 10 years. I, I, I graduated in uh, 2002 from okay. art school. You know, I, I did a lot of other oddball jobs since then and kind of like, I, I kind of gave up art. I did some painting every now and then. I always kind of did a little something, but I never really found any way to like pursue it. And of course I had children and kind of was busy raising them when they were really little, and uh, they're still pretty little. It wasn't until about uh, probably, I'm going to say like 2013, that I actually made that bag. Maybe a little bit earlier, I'm not really sure. So I haven't really been doing it all that long. Well, you couldn't tell by looking at it, (laughs) looking at your work. The fact that, yeah, 
I, you know, that's weird. A lot of people, I, I mean, I'm, I'm 38 years old, or excuse me, actually, I'm 39, and it's funny because I get like, you know, a lot of people who make this stuff are retired. They're kind of, uh, you know, in their 60s and 70s, and uh, they're kind of like, uh, at least at first, they were kind of like shocked. About, you know, that I was that age. I had already kind of thought of myself as kind of old at that point. You know, I was like, ah, oh, I'm almost 40. I'm an old man now. Right. And then I, it was kind of funny to people being like, what? Young, 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 you know, you're in your 30s? Like, oh, yeah, I thought I was done pretty much. <laughs> and all of a sudden you've got a whole, you know, other half of your career coming up. Yeah, it's kind of cool. So that's, that's kind of what, that's kind of how it happened. I was like, all right. And it since I've become like a, a really like kind of, I guess what I was meant to do art-wise, at least for now. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, I'm the kind of person like I, I'm really not, I, I mean, I, I have other certain things in life that I am disciplined about, but when it comes to art, um, the concepts I'm not very disciplined about. In other words, like I will kind of pursue any direction I want to. Right. Um, when it comes to the materials and, and, you know, the execution, I, I try to stay as disciplined as possible. But when it comes to like the concept and, and thinking up of, uh, you know, letting the creativity go where it needs to go, I try not to be rigid at all. Right. That kind of, that was kind of my fine arts thing too. I was never like the kind of person to sit there and study, you know, how to draw a hand perfectly or something. You know, I kind of was a little bit undisciplined in general. Um, and it's, it's taken decades to become more disciplined. But I kind of like, uh, that aspect that I can kind of go anywhere I want to with my work and not feel like I'm boxed in. I don't, make a lot of work that um, copies any particular historic direction. Yeah. I don't make a lot of work for reenactor or living, you know, living historians very often. Um, I did at first. I kind of was like concerned about it, but the more I looked into, the more I, the more I studied um, surviving antique bags, the more I realized like we really know almost nothing about them. It's such a... Um, Un, you know, it's such a really unknown thing because it's a small thing. It's a bag, a shoulder bag. Um, it's not really an, a key component of, of people's material, um, uh, you know, equipment from back then. And, yeah. I mean, it is, but it's not like, you know, it's like people, you can tell like they know everything there is to know about the brown dust musket, for example. You know, yeah. They can tell you what factory. But that was a really pivotal piece. Right. Whereas like a shooting bag is kind of like, you know, they're, they're really, there's no catalog that survives showing them from back then. Or, you know what I mean? There's no, there's very few of them that are proven to be 18th century that exist, that are still in existence today. Um, so the more I kind of looked into it, the more I realized, well, you know, there really isn't a whole lot of information about these. And what, what kind of like blew my mind too, is I was talking to someone and, uh, I'm not going to say their name, but they, they told me that they worked on, they were one of the people that helped Madison Grant, the uh, author and collector who's kind of well-known during the late later 20th century. He made the book, uh, the Kentucky Rifle Hunting Pouch book. Okay. You know, if, if, you're, if you make, if you started making bags, that's kind of like a, almost like a, a Bible of sorts for you. You're like, oh, yeah. wow, flipping through every page. You know, you're kind of blown away by how cool it is. And I met someone who, says that, uh, this is what he told me was that he was one of the people that was kind of on the staff that Madison kind of put together to make, make the book. And he had them all repair all these, these antique bags and they attached the horns, they attached knives, uh, 
powder measures. They, they did all kinds of repairs to them. And that kind of blew my mind. I was like, well, so, you know, how much of this stuff is original? You know, on these bags, you have no idea. Right. Um, and even if that's not true, there's really no way to know that somebody didn't attach. If you see an antique bag anywhere and there's like, you look at it, you're like, well, it's got a knife attached to it, a horn. You know, there, somebody could have put that on at any point, you know? Yeah. Um, during, during its collection, during its ownership. Um, so I kind of, you know, I kind of started to realize, well, we don't really know anything. There's no reason to like try to uh, categorize all these things. And the more I kind of uh, realized that, the more relaxed I got and the, actually the better my own work got. It was, it, would you say it was kind of freeing then? Exactly, exactly. I was like, you know what? I don't really care if this is a historically accurate thing at this point. I, I just wanted to look the way it would look if I wanted it, you know? Yeah. And that's, uh, that's kind of how it has gone. Hmm. So it's kind of like, it was like a breakthrough. Yeah. With that in me, mind, you know, your, your bags to me look very period, but you say you're not, well, I do, you're not replicating anything. You're still looking at, you know, historic examples when you can, I guess I w looking at your work, I wouldn't assume that that's how you felt about, you know, what we know about traditional bags. Well, I do. I don't want to say that, you know, I don't want to misrepresent that. I do study a lot of bags. Okay. I have studied a lot of them. Um, I seek them out. I, I collect some of them. I try to, I try not to collect too many antique bags anymore because, you know, I kind of realize I'm, not, I'm spending money on like decaying leather, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> but I do, you know, yeah, it seems on my ground. This is not a good investment, you know? So I, I stopped buying them mostly, but I do study a lot of them. I seek out, I seek them out wherever I see them. Um, people send me because I kind of, uh, I guess a lot of people know my work, so a lot of people send me bag pictures of bags, or they seek me out at different shows and will bring them, just like they do for a lot of other people. Um, I'm not an expert by any means, but um, I do get approached by a lot of people with bags, and I do so. I do try to study them as much as possible. Yeah. Um, and I try to incorporate all the elements that I see on them in my own work. So even something that you see that might be a little bit crazy, like an animal face or some kind of inlay that seems like, oh, come on, that's that's weird. But I, I usually, most of the time, I've seen that on an antique bag. And even the repairs, like I try to copy some of the repairs I've seen that, you know, that repair might be 20 years old. That repair might be new. That repair might be 100 years old. I try to incorporate the repairs and the damage that I see on them if I'm trying to make something look a little bit older. Yeah. Um, so I try to do that. I don't just... I try to make things up. In other words, I try to make it look like it fits in kind of a in a, in a time period that. Because at the end of the day, they do they are collected mostly by uh, people who appreciate history and uh, are going to use them or at least pair them with um, a flintlock rifle. So they do have to fit the part. They can't be, you know, completely anachronistic. Right. That's very interesting. And these are high quality bags. I mean, you're not going to the CLA show with boxes and boxes of these. I can, I assume. No. Um, in fact, it's getting harder and harder to have stuff for the CLA show. You know, my first year I did the show, I probably had like 20 bags with me and they were, I, I made this big display and they were all hanging off and they were, they were like wind chimes hanging above my head at the show. And I was like, you know, I couldn't, 
two people on the other side of them. And then the next year I was less. And, you know, I, I kind of was like, one of the uh, bag makers I've always admired is this guy, Joe Mills, who we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and the first year I went to the show, I, I, I sought him out and I went to his table and he had a box on his table, like a wooden box. And that was it. Just a wooden box. And I was like, oh my God, he's got nothing, you know. I was expecting like a display of like his, his, all the bags that he's made that I've like, you know, been amazed by. He just, he had a box. That was it. And inside the box was a, was a few bags he was working on or, or antique bags he was repairing. And, um, you know, I was kind of like, wow, he doesn't have to have anything. And, uh, he just goes there and he's like, it's not about selling bags for him. He just goes there for the experience of the show. And as he's kind of almost like a part of the show. Yeah. And I noticed, uh, Another artist I've always really admired is, 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 is been like a mentor also for me is uh, Ian Pratt. Okay. And, and his wife, Mary Ellen. And I always noticed like, you know, they would have like, maybe he, he'd have one gun on a table and two of her bags that were, you know, maybe they were already sold. Um, or maybe sometimes Ian might not even have a gun there. Maybe he was, have a gun he was working on there. You know, and I was like, wow, these, these people, they don't go there. It's not, they're not vendors. They're, uh, they're artists. Yeah. They're part of the show. You know, Ian, he'd be standing in front of the table at the Dixon's Gunmakers Fair. He'd bring, he'd get, he wouldn't have a real table. He'd bring a small card table where Mary Ellen would sit, you know, uh, doing something, just hanging out with their dog, you know, their, their dog would be there. And he would bring like a, a, a gunmaker's vice standing up that he built just for the show. And he'd be there like, Kind of mindlessly shaping the buttstock of the rifle, you know, just, just to have something to do, really, you know, and it's kind of right. like, it was kind of, you know, he, he was part of the show more than like a vendor hawking his wares. And that kind of made an impression on me, too. And I, I've, I've since tried to like make my display at the show, like just a couple of bags, um, on, on a few different boards or, you know, rather than laid out on the table, I try to put them on something to get them off the table, um, so they're more visible. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't, I guess what you were kind of saying is that, you know, they, they take a long time to make, yeah. um, they take a lot of, a lot of work. So I don't make too many of them. Not like I used to, I'm not really all that prolific as I used to be. I can't really crank them out, but they take a long time to make the materials, uh, take time to source and to work with. And, uh, I kind of, I spend a lot of time conceptualizing them. That's kind of a big part of what I do is mostly like the actual making of the bag is, is like nothing compared to the amount of time I spend thinking about them. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, you know yeah. I mean? Yeah. So when you, it might not be, when you think, when you, you're yeah, talking yeah. about um, conceptualizing it, you know, what's that process look like? Are you sitting down with a sketchbook and, you know, some pencils, some watercolors, or is it, is it research? What's that look like? It's, it's really kind of all of that. You know, a lot of it is like, like any idea, some of it comes to you while you're like in the shower or walking to the supermarket or something, you know? Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Or I see a picture of, a, um, you know, sometimes I see a picture of like a modern band, you know what I mean? Like, uh, like, a, um, luggage or something or a, a modern sh uh like a upland hunting bag or something and i'm like you know something some element of it catches my attention like the, the way the flap sits on it or the way the trim is or or the shape of it and i start to think a little bit and then I, you know, 
well, where did they get that from? You know, where's that idea from? And then I start to look at older bags to see if there's some trace of it somewhere. Um, or I might see a picture of an antique bag I really like, and I say, oh, man, I really want to make not a copy of that, but something that has what I like about it in it. And then, so I get this kind of like spark of an idea, and I kind of like sit on it for a while. I don't act on it right away. Um, I kind of keep a sketchbook with me almost all the time, just in case I feel like it. Um, like there's always one like in, you know, wherever, you know, where my, my the chair I'm sitting, my chair that I sit in, whether it's one, the one I, you know, work at or um, watch TV, and I always keep like a sketchbook near it. Um, and I do a lot of sketching. I don't, you know, I'll sketch it from different angles. I sketch the ideas. Um, I might, uh, I might kick an idea off a good friend of mine, you know, and show it to him. What do you think? What do you think about this idea? Um, we do that back and forth. Uh, and then what I'll start to do is I'll start to look at the materials that I have and I'll, I'll kind of like, I lay them out, um, mess with them. Kind of fold them, put them together. It's just, it's just, you know, I start to like, all right, like do math equations. Like, all right, if I do this textile and I mess with it like this, what do I have to do to the leather next to make it look the way I want? Or, you know, or what can I do with leather to make it not look like the leather it's starting out as without ruining it? You know, yeah. And I start to, you know, I start to kick around the logistics of it, and then I stop and I go do something else and forget all about it for a week, and then come back to it. And it takes, it really takes like, like if you see a bag that I make and you're like, wow, oh, I really like that. It probably has been like picked up and started and put down and, and even just the idea of it has been picked up and put down over like a six month period. Okay. Um, and that seems... then I finally like, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that seems very you know, free flowing, so to speak. You know, I, I think the craftsmen I've talked to, a lot of them do that. Well, they'll, they'll have an idea for something, they'll get started and then it'll kind of naturally get to this point where they need to put it down and, you know, they'll go start on something else or go finish something else. And then they kind of circle back to whatever that original thing yeah. was. Um, for me, a lot of it though is like, when I actually get started on it, like physically making it, I work very quick and kind of get it done all at once. Okay. Most of the time. Not all the time. I mean, you know, there's, there's things that have to dry and steps you have to take with different materials, but, um, that sometimes, you know, can take a long time between steps. Um, and then things come up obviously in life that you have to put it down for a while. But it's, for me, it's more the, uh, the conceptualization gets picked up and put down over a long period of time. Okay. You know, and then I, then I, when I actually get started working, you know, when I actually start it, I go kind of crazy and like feverishly work at it until it's done more or less. And then, so it's really like the, the time I conceptualize it is really where like 90% of the work is. And you know, and they, they don't all come to fruition. A lot of times, you know, like I could show you a page out of my sketchbook and you'll see like eight different sketches that are bad and only one of them is the one that it looks like the final product came out resembling. Um, the other, the other, there might be like eight other versions of it on the page and they just, something about it didn't quite work for me. Um, when, you, when you're dealing with uh, shapes, you know, and, and uh, color and materials, 
it's there's really no like rules and things you can stick to in a lot of ways. You know, you kind of have to see what it looks like and what pleases your own eye. Yeah, that's it. It becomes very personal in that mind, then, right? I would assume. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it's kind of like what. You know, it's it's one of these things that's really hard to explain. You just kind of have to sit down and do it and work on it, and if it makes you happy. I think you know you might it might be good. Yeah. And a lot of times, it's really weird. A lot of times, the stuff that I like, that I really really like, that I do. Um, people will like it, but they'll be kind of like, oh, yeah, that's nice. Nice. You know, they're not, they try not to hurt my feelings. You know, they're like, oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's really good. You know, they don't want to be like, oh, yeah, that's really not your best. But it's like something that I'm like super proud of. And then the thing that I kind of made, like, that was kind of like a project that I didn't pay a ton of attention to and just kind of did almost out of the corner of my eye. You know, people go crazy for it. And I'm like, really? That's the one that you went crazy over? Like, it's, it's really weird how that works. Yeah. No, I, I that happens all the time. And it, it's so weird. It's something super quick, you know, that you're just kind of getting something out people love. And then the thing you spend, you know, weeks on, they just, meh, it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of like the nature of art. I mean, music is like that. You know, people, you know, what what's the most successful music? It's not like the, you know, the... 10 minute long song on an album that's usually like the two and a half minute long really catchy song you know like, yeah that's just that's just how it is people like they like that you know they like uh you know a lot of times if you didn't put it if you did something a little more naturally it's going to be a little it's going to look a little bit more natural that's just just how it is so when did you get involved with the cla show then I'm not exactly sure. I'm going to say, uh, I think my first show was about 2015. I'm thinking. Okay. I think I've been going for maybe four, four years or five years. I'm not really positive. I have to go back and look, but I used to look at the, uh, like I mentioned before, the contemporary makers blog. I would, uh, I would look at that all the time, search through it. There's a search field. I always tell people, you know, you can go, there's a search field on it, that, that software blogger. Um, yeah. You can type in anyone's name. You can type in any kind of object, any kind of art, and it'll bring up, you know, it'll bring up all those, all their end blog entries that have that keyword or have that in the title or even in any of the text. So, um, I was always looking up artists that I, I like or uh, bags that I like or, just different topics. And, uh, eventually I made, I probably made like four or five bags, maybe, maybe eight or nine. I'm not sure. And I finally emailed one to, uh, to the blog. And I didn't know who I was emailing. I just sent them a, um, picture of a bag and I was a little email saying, hi, you know, there's, there's some work I did. I don't know if you show new artist work. And it wasn't, it wasn't a bad offering. And they, they, uh, they ran with it and I, I, and they, sh they, uh, showed it and I was pretty blown away by it. I was like, Oh my God, my art, you know, somebody likes my bag. It was cool. And uh, I started to do that more and more. And, uh, I became friends with the people who, um, run the blog, Art and Gen Riser mm -hmm. and got to know them really well. They're, they're really, uh, dedicated, amazing people with a, with an awesome artistic sense. In fact, I kind of 
like one of my kind of like uh, a benchmark for me is if I make a bag and art art riser like really kind of want it. If, if art is lusting after it, I'm like, all right, I know this is a really good piece of work. You know, it's like, yeah. he's, he's like my favorite. And, uh, if I had to pick like an audience member, you know, I'd be like, ah, oh, you know, like art really likes it. I know I, I hit the nail on the head with this one. So it was really funny. And like, you know, if, if he's like, how much is this one? You know, I'm like, uh, well, you know, I know, I, I know I kind of did that one good. I was like, yes. Yeah. Um, so they, they started, uh, posting some of my work and I, uh, I was kind of, uh, that gave me a lot of confidence and, uh, I was, I would bring my work to Dixon's, the Gunmaker's Fair and show some of the artists there, yeah. uh, my work. And, uh, a lot of them I had seen their work in the Contemporary Makers blog. So I kind of got the, uh, my confidence level got a little boost from that. I was like, you know, maybe, maybe this stuff is pretty good. These, these are, these people like it. They have, uh, giving me positives and constructive criticism. So it's, you know, I can only improve it. And, uh, I saw on the blog, the blog always, um, the maker's blog would show pictures from every year's CLA show. And I started to see in the pictures people who were younger at their tables. I was like, oh, well, there's, you know, there, it's not all people who have been doing this forever who have, you know, who are retired and have the time for it and are really, you know, super knowledgeable a decade of, of doing this kind of work. There's younger people there. So I, uh, joined the CLA and got a table and, uh, had a lot of fun, you know, and it was just the first year was so much fun. It was so exciting to have a table there and to have a million conversations and to see all the work there that I had seen on the blog all the time. And, uh, the, you know, see a room full of antique stuff that I don't really get to see a lot. So, uh, that was kind of an experience I, I really had to repeat every year and get better at it every year also. Wow, that's really neat. And I think it you speak very highly of Art and Jen Riser, and I think it's really wonderful what they've done for the community. You know, a lot of, you know, when you get back into the 70s and the 80s and living history and rendezvous is what they were a lot of times called in that time period. You know, it, it didn't necessarily focus on the artisans and the craftsmen of what everybody was wearing and doing and art and Jen riser and with the contemporary makers blog and then the CLA show have, I, I feel they've elevated the status of everybody who makes like, like yourself who makes this premier nice work. And if anybody listening hasn't been to the show, I mean, what would you describe it as? Because for me, it's, it's a, a nice intersection between like a gallery showing that you would expect to see and then you know what we all kind of grew up with in the rendezvous and the in the living history events but what would you describe that as yeah i would i would agree with that it i think it, it's uh leans a little bit more toward the uh, art art gallery kind of side of it um which is what i kind of was looking for in that and i appreciate it about it and i, I would uh just the fact that it's, it's like kind of an elevation, like you say, it's not a vending kind of thing. And I think, I think that's difficult for some people. They kind of, because they, they kind of do expect to sell things. Yeah. And, uh, make a certain amount of money or at least cover their trip. And, you know, that may not always be the case for everyone. Um, 
it's, but it is more of a kind of like an art setting where you go and you're, if you've ever been to like an art show or even like an art gallery, it's, it's not really like a, uh, it's not a market. It's a, it's more of a meet the artist. Talk about it. With, yeah. Talk about it. Get into discussions about it. Physically see things, um, share ideas, uh, you know, and, and a lot of a big part of it is the kind of the community sense of it. Yes. Um, there's a you know you meet up with groups of people every year that you might not you would never you know you're all from all over the country. I'm I'm probably one of the few people from New York that actually goes to the show. Um, a lot of people are from the Midwest, from the South. Um, there's people who come as far as Alaska. So these are people that would not see each other all year long. They, they, everybody's kind of talking and, you know, they, they, they interact on social media more so, but it's a great opportunity to kind of meet and have a drink or, you know, have lunch, dinner, whatever, and, and, uh, kick around ideas, get, you know, kind of reaffirm your friendships in person. Um, people that you, you know, that you, uh, not just, you know, their work, but maybe you guys collaborate on work together yes. or you, uh, you know, you really respect each other's work a lot and you talk about it. So, you know, your, your work is similar or they, or they know more than you know, and there's things you can learn from them. You know, that's kind of a, a fun thing. And one, one thing I like about it too is, uh, a friend of mine, Paul Fenewald, um, who's now a, uh, he's on the board now. He's been working really hard the last two years to bring in new artists and, it's kind of fun for me, uh, you know, cause I'm a friend of his. I try to help him with that where I can. Um, you know, I kind of incorporate the things I learned as a new artist there. Um, to help, you know, kind of be there for some of the new artists, um, tell them what to expect, um, you know, introduce them to people, uh, you know, help them, help them. A lot of people are, you know, you know how artists are. Everybody's kind of, Artists tend to be very unique people. Some of them are very shy. Yeah. So they might, they might need a hand approaching another artist who might not be the most approachable person in, in their physical appearance. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, All right, listen, you know, this guy's a really nice guy. I'll take you over there and, and introduce you. And then, I'll, and then I walk away. You know what I mean? It's things like that. I, I kind of enjoy that. Um, you know, giving them feedback if they ask for it, that kind of stuff. It's kind of fun to be able to play that role now. Because I, there really, that wasn't really in place when I started going. Even just a few years ago, there was no um, formal mechanism for that. There was no like welcoming committee of any kind. You just kind of showed up. Um, you know, the, the uh, you know Rachel from the CLA might come over and say hello. Um, maybe you meet, you meet Gordon, the uh, president at the time. But you kind of were like, you know, you kind of had to figure it out yourself. And, yeah. And if you're not willing to approach people, no, you know, you. you you're going to lose out. So I kind of, you know, I, I like I used to go to Dixon's. I, I mentioned Dixon's. I want to mention them again. That's another fantastic uh, venue for people um, on the East Coast who like this stuff. Um, I, I would bring a, a small shopping bag with some of my work, and I would kind of go up to artists and kind of force them to look at it. And some of them would be very reluctant to provide any kind of criticism, and I would kind of, you know, you know, I'm, I'm a New Yorker. I don't really take no for an answer. I'm like, all right, here you go. Tell me what you think. You know, they're kind of like, you know, they're not used. 
that, that kind of that's a little more forward than some people are used to, but uh, you know, I, it kind of helped me out a lot. Yeah. So um, I try to I try to encourage that with the newer artists that I meet too. I'm like, all right, you know, you, there's no reason not to go talk to this guy. He's really nice, and uh, he knows a ton about you know, let's say knife making, and you have a conversation with him. You know, it's that's always a that's always like a real pleasure for me to see people kind of like other people exchange ideas and grow and, and you know, because that was a lot of fun for me. Yeah. You know, and it still is fun for me. One of, one of my favorite things to do is collaborate with other artists as possible. Um, it's not always easy to do, but it's uh, it's a lot of fun. And I think the, the CLA environment, both online and physically, really lends itself to that. You know, young artists... Oh, yeah. I mean, it's very easy to be intimidated, especially when you're going into an event of that caliber, like CLA or Dixon's, you know, where there are people that you can follow now and interact with online, but then being in person is a whole nother level. But yeah. so many people, I'm not going to say all, you know, because there still are people who, you know, might not necessarily be approachable, but it's nice to know there are people like you in the community going around and saying, you know, let's go talk to this person. You want some feedback. This is the person to hear from. They're going to tell you what you need to know and, and how to get better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is kind of, you know, you, you do have to keep an open mind. You know, you have to, um, there's always going to be people who their criticism is not going to be very helpful. Yeah. Even if it's legitimate criticism, um, there's, you know, there's all kinds of personalities. And also among the new artists, I kind of noticed there's like, I mean, it makes you sound like, you know, a grumpy old man, but because of social media now, you have so much, even in like the last two years of it, you have so much more access to showing everyone your work. So you might not have made a lot of work, but you're able to get it in front of a lot of people. Yes. So you're kind of used to getting um, positive feedback all the time. You might not used to be getting, you know, you might not have a, thick enough skin when you actually get some serious criticism and you might not know how to process it. So I do, I'm like, you know, I, I caution people with that. I'm like, look, you know, you know, you might be, you might be used to having people, you know, really congratulate, congratulate your work online. This is amazing done, but don't be hurt if somebody who's been making these for longer than you've been alive tells you that you have to clean up some stuff or, you know, you're, you're stop shaping your shit or something like that. You know, yeah. you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to consider all the things they're saying and determine if it's a legitimate criticism or not and then address it if you want to. Yeah, there's a difference between yeah. feedback and critique. Yeah, and, and some feedback is not totally... Um, uh, you know, some, some feedback, even if it's true, it may not really matter to you. You know, if somebody's like, well, that's this element you're doing there is not necessarily good for this reason. And the the reason that they're giving you might be kind of like, well, you know, I can kind of live with that. I don't really care. Um, you know, I, that was one thing that uh, I kind of, I, every year there's this uh, judging at Dixon's. That's a lot of fun too. Um, I encourage everybody to go, not only go to Dixon's, but if you're a maker to enter items in the, they have like a, uh, it's not really a contest. It's more of a, um, it's almost like a county fair where you enter items and they get judged and you get a ribbon kind of thing. Yeah. You know, and there's, there's, there's different categories of ribbon. Um, that's a lot of fun and it's, and you do get a lot of good feedback, but it's the same kind of thing. You have to kind of analyze the feedback and see if it really 
Um, not that it's illegitimate, but if it really fits what you're doing, you know what I mean? Well, you, you kind of have like construction methods that somebody might point out to you that say, well, if you make a bag this way, it could rip. And you would say, well, yeah, that might happen, but I like the way it looks. And what you're talking about ripping, that might happen in 40, 50 years. Um, and it might rip anyway because it's leather. Leather rips. Yeah, it's a natural um, material. Right. So, you know, you have to kind of take, you know, you have to take all the criticism you get with a grain of salt. And that comes better with time, like for any artist. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah. you went to art school, you know, like there were, there were people who would, you know, they'd go into a spiral of depression if people critique their art. And there were people that could take it. And then there were people that thought, you know, there's people that think that they don't, can't be criticized at all. There's all types. So I just, I encourage keeping an open mind when you're, when you're showing your work to people and also as the person critiquing it, keep an open mind, you know? Yeah. There's, there's a difference between offering constructive critique to help improve somebody's work and then just kind of lambasting them, you know, and, and purposely yeah. going out and making them feel bad. Like that's, that's not necessarily Absolutely. warranted. Or, or even if you're not, you know, you're, you're not just raking their work over the coals. Even if you're choosing an element of their work, that doesn't really, you know, you're kind of putting your own belief system on it. Well, I don't think that I don't like this material. Um, you know, you, you, that kind of stuff. You, you have to kind of keep an open mind as an artist in general, I think, or your, your art is going to suffer. This has been, <laughs> this has been really interesting, Eric. I, I have to say, I'm really pleased of your, about your background in fine art. Um, several of the people I've talked to, this uh, like traditional craft has just been something they kind of meandered into, you know, and they still enjoy it. And it's still great to talk to them, but you're, you're bringing a very um, pointed, you know, artistic look at it. Whereas I think many people might look at it as uh, the kind of thing that people do when they retire and they like history. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I do. I write some articles from Motorola magazine. It's a great magazine. And a lot of them are biographies about, artists and and many of them that's many of the people that's what it is when I talk to them they're like well you know I worked at this uh this plant for 30 years and when I retired I you know I could finally spend time making this these, these powder horns that I like all these years you know and it's they 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 have they do not have like a background in art they never really approached it like art and right. they're still making a thing they're, they're craftsmen you know what I mean they're true Craftsman, or, or maybe a better term would be like an artisan. You know what I mean? So they're an artist and a craftsman, but you're right; it's a different, it's a different approach. And I've kind of noticed that. I'm like, yeah, this is a different kind of thing. There is there is some difference in in the work between people, and and I know some people who really blur the line um, between art and craftsman. Um, I could name a couple. Of, my, my good friend Billy Griner, he makes uh, powder horns. His horns are kind of like, you know, he's a, he's a immaculate craftsman where he puts a tremendous amount of, of, uh, thought into proper fit and lathe work. But he's also, you know, very, uh, the art kind of flows as well. You know, he's a free flowing artist with his work and he's, and he's a contemporary artist. So his horns, they're, they're southern banded, uh, powder horns. But they're not, um, most of them are, are not copies. But at the same time, you know, his fit and finish is usually like impeccable. Hmm. So, you know, it's, it's kind of, some people are just 
uh, I've always admired that about a lot of the people that, you know, that I've met at uh, Dixon's and the CLA is that they're able to use, uh, equipment. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like in, in a way that with precision that I can't, uh, another, another person I can name is, uh, Shane Emig, who, um, the, uh, of cabin creek muzzle loading. Oh yes, him yes. And his dad, him and his dad Brad, they're you know they're they're artists, but they're you know they're they do stuff with tools and materials that I that I definitely do not have the discipline or patience for. And uh, that's kind of interesting. A lot of a lot of times it seems weird, but those are kind of the people I admire: the artists that can use uh, complicated machines and tools, or, or even just their hands and. You know, you, you would not want to see me engrave a gun barrel. It would, look, it would look a little bit like, it would kind of look kind of neat, but it would look prehistoric probably. Right. It would not look like fun. It wouldn't look fine, you know? Yeah. I mean, I can make a nice, I can make a nice looking leather bag. I, you know, I don't, I can make a non roadkill looking bag, but it's still, uh, when it comes to, uh, certain tools and precision, I'm just, you know, it's, that's tough on me. Yeah. You, it always you, has been. It's not so much about the the measurements and stitch counting, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't feel comfortable with a lot of that stuff, and I haven't been doing it a long time. Um, but that's always uh, those are people I admire who can kind of blow that line between, um, you know, being a being a skilled craftsman and artist at the same time. Yeah. Certainly. If you don't mind me asking, uh, are you making a living off of your traditional bags, or do you work somewhere else? I do have a uh, I do have a job that I you know I pay the bills with, and I uh, I kind of am always kind of teetering on the edge of making a living doing this, but not quite. Um, it's kind of impossible to be honest. With, you know, you, there's just there's just not as you know big enough of a market for it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a different kind of thing. It, you know how art is. Art yeah. is not, you know, it's a commodity. It's a luxury item. So, and this is even more unique. I mean, I've toyed around with the idea of being a full-time leather worker and doing leather work mm-hmm. to make a living. Um, and it wouldn't, and you know, not just making, not making uh, workmen like goods, but making actual commissioned leather, leather art for people, uh, for the, you know, for their homes, practical use things and stuff. But, um, I haven't really figured out how to do it properly. And at the same time, um, you know, maintain a, you know, modern lifestyle in New York state. Yeah. (laughs) There's a lot of limitations when you, when you're trying to sell art. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have friends who do it, but, um, they, you know, they, they have a very lower cost of living. Um, and, you know, that's, that's how most of them are able to do it. Their cost of living is significantly less due to different factors. Maybe they don't have kids or maybe, um, taxes are really low where they live or, you know, things like that. Yeah. So it's, I would not encourage anyone to do this for a living. <laughs> so, um, that's a no go. I, I do make, uh, I have been making some items for, a uh, television show. Oh, really? Um, and I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say the name of it um, or talk about it much. I, I probably shouldn't mention it yet. Oh, that's they, okay. They're a little bit weird about. Um, it's going to be on Amazon Prime. I can tell you that. 
that is kind of something I've been looking to do to supplement an actual income. But, you know, you also, you also have to be careful with this stuff. You know, when you start to cross over into doing it to pay bills, you know, then you start to, uh, you do start to kill some of the purity of it. So you have to oh, yeah. watch out. You know, I do know people who have done that and it caused a lot of problems for them. And they've, they've, you know, they've opened up to me about it, how they tried to do it full time to pay all the bills and it just kind of blew up in their face. Um, in various ways. So that is something to consider also. You have to be careful with this stuff. You know, it's, art, art can be really volatile. Yes. Yes, you know? definitely. It really can. The nature of it, it can, it can make people happy. It can piss people off. It can ruin your life and you really don't have any control of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's as natural as we are, I think. Uh, it's, it's really easy to look at work coming in of people wanting, you know, whatever art or craft that you work in and, and thinking and enjoying doing it. But soon uh, that there's a threshold in there that somewhere is reached and all of a sudden it's just upside down and, and it's not fun anymore. You're not enjoying it. And it's just it becomes some real drudgery and you, you kind of pillage exactly. the purity. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, if you're making, if you're doing anything because you have to, it becomes a job. Yes. And, some people have a job they love. A lot of people don't. <laughs> most most people do not. So. Yeah, and that's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's just how it is, you know. I mean, we'll see. Maybe someday down the road, um, you know, everyone. It's funny people talk about, uh, you know, movies making muzzle loading really popular. That always amuses me. You know, yeah. I mean, they're like, oh well, they'll come out with a new movie and everybody will, you know, it'll be a new renaissance. I'm like, oh, I don't know, you know. I wouldn't count on it. Yeah, there's a lot that goes into that, and it's not just kind of a a snap your fingers and then this is the hot trend. Right, right. The the culture in general has to be suited for it, you know? Yeah. Um, I I get the feeling now that, you know, like uh, everybody was like, oh, the Revenant, it's going to change. It's going to be like last time they're all going to be people into it. I mean, not really. It didn't really happen. I I think that kind of stuff comes elsewhere now. Um, the idea of like, you know, guys walking around the woods with beards and footlocks and shooting bears and stuff, that is not, that's not really viewed by the culture at large. That's, that's kind of looked at as like toxic now, you know? Yeah. Um, you see, you, you have to see like, like, like I know you mentioned Instagram before. If you look at Instagram, there's a lot of people who are interested in primitive living and they're interested in, uh, tanning. Um, you know, sheltered building, things like that, um, hunting, but they're kind of, you know, approaching it from a, a, you know, more of like an earth still kind of approach. It's not so much like, you know, it's not like I'm a, I'm a guy, I'm a man in the woods, you know, that kind of shit. It's a little right. bit more. It's, it's more environmentally focused. Exactly. And that's kind of like, you kind of see how that's where, interest comes from is not so much you know our preconceived notions it's more of like what is the culture like right now well you know that's what people are interested in that's what younger people are interested in and that's how you're going to get people interested in in this kind of stuff so um that's kind of been fun for me is uh the interest i've gotten elsewhere has been a a lot of fun yeah uh, because I, i use a lot of primitive uh homemade hides in my work I get a lot of interest from people who are tanning 
and they, you know, who are doing backyard tanning and they, they have, they have nothing to do with muzzle loading or firearms or any of that. And they just, they're into tanning. So a lot of them like my work because they're seeing the hides that they work with all the time being used. And they're kind of like, wow, you know, or the animals that they harvest themselves, like foxes and woodchucks and raccoons, they're, they're kind of seeing them being put to use and, um, you know, that's kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, in, uh, after, in a lot of ways. after the collapse of the fur trade, you know, I mean, my father hunted and trapped for years. But now, I mean, a raccoon or a possum hide or like a groundhog or, or whatever, you know, it's not really worth anything. And, and it, it's nice to see your work where you're making use of what would kind of commonly be considered now as a, you know, a junk hide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I actually use a, a lot of them. They are like at their worst time of year too. I, the raccoons that I I use are mostly uh, caught in the spring. Oh, um, so they're like, and that's kind of it's kind of an advantage for me because they they're they're very scraggly, so they look scraggly in the work, which is you know sometimes that has a great effect. Yeah. Um, the reason is I catch them when I, I raise chickens, so I I catch them. When I'm, when the, uh, I raise, uh, meat chickens in the spring. So, okay. you know, you, I put out traps the same time I put the chickens out because they, they bring each other and eventually the raccoons will get in. So you kind of have to. Oh, yeah. Um, I know that firsthand. Yeah. You, you, so you know what I mean? It's not like I'm hunting raccoons. I'm just, you know, kind of preemptively stopping them. So I wind up with a lot of raccoon hides in the spring when they're kind of uh, scraggly and not so good and, you know, would otherwise be kind of useless. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of fun. I mean, I, I, it looks like I'm, you know, I, I don't, I don't actually use any roadkill. I don't, I, I use the term roadkill cause it sounds funny, but I don't use any actual roadkill. I, I either trap the animals myself. I have a friend with a very large farm and, uh, sometimes we just, you know, when we, we used to do this a lot more not so much anymore, but, you know, we'd go and hunt woodchucks, woodchucks for a day. Um, or I'll put a, you know, I'll put out a trap and catch one and, and tan it. Um, so most of the stuff is caught or trapped by me or like a good friend. Yeah. And I do have a lot of people approach me with hides that they are, you know, dead at. Like, you know, there was this one day I come home and there's a dead skunk sitting like on a tarp in my driveway. I'm, I'm like, all right. <laughs> There's, there's a dead skunk, you know, and I realized a neighbor had come and dropped it off, you know, because about a week later, I saw him come right over on his quad and drop a woodchuck in the same spot. I was like, all right, he's bringing me dead animals because he knows I use them. And as long as I get here before my wife gets home, it's not so bad, <laughs> you know, but uh, it's, you know, it's kind of funny. That, you know, it seems like I have this, I do, I have this kind of weird relationship with the, the small mammals, I guess. You know, I don't really bear them any ill will, um, but they wind up in my art. Yeah. Lot. Well, they get used. I mean, kind of weird. I mean, for until, I don't know, as close as 80 years ago, you know, and, and maybe even 50 years ago, it was, it, that was just how things were done and how things were made. And now we have plastics and all sorts of other materials that, that take the place of those things. But it's looking back at history. It's very natural. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, things like that in this country are very different than they were, you know, 
not just during you know, the Great Depression, for example, all these animals would have been scarce because people would be eating them all the time. But, you know, even, even before that or right after, people would be, you know, and people would eat it. Before the supermarket, a raccoon would be considered food. You know what I mean? Yes. A squirrel would be considered food in this, for, for a lot of the people in this country. Not, obviously not in big cities and, and wealthier affluent areas, but, you know, so it's, it, you're right. It is kind of a, um, it was kind of a natural way for most of the world to live up until probably the middle of the 20th century, you know, to, uh, utilize all these different animals that we have. Yeah, definitely. This is really interesting, Eric. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah, no problem. It's uh, always fun. I love talking about this stuff. I love doing it. I wish uh, more people would get into it and do this kind of stuff too. It's always fun for me to see uh, work by people doing this stuff. And uh, I'm always happy to share things that I've learned doing it in the short time I have been doing it with people. Um, it's funny, on Instagram, I get tagged by people in a lot of stuff. Oh, really? And I'm like, you know, I get somebody's like, they shot a raccoon and they like tagged me in it. I'm like, oh, this is weird. Or, uh, <laughs> you know, somebody's like, um, they, you know, they're just anything, they're cooking breakfast next to a stream and they tag me in it. I'm like, this is, you know, I guess, I guess so. <laughs> I'm like, okay. You know, it's just, uh, I'm glad to see people kind of doing other, other things, different things, living, living their art, you know, rather than just, uh, you know, being normal, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's nice to see people, you know, not that sitting on the couch on your phone is bad, but it's nice to see people doing other things and working with their hands and making something. I think it's really important for people to do, whether it's, you know, for the NMLRA, a lot of it's black powder shooting, but, you know, doing living history, going out and trekking in the woods or making your own gear, you know, making your own art like you do, you know, it's getting out there and doing something I think is really important for people to do. And it's nice to see, especially on social media, as well as in-person shows like CLA or the Dixon's Gun Fair you talk about. You know, getting out there and doing something and spreading that knowledge uh, rather than hoarding it and, oh, yeah. and making it feel like it's dying out. Yeah, absolutely. I, I have a, a very good friend of mine, uh, Matthew Fennewald. You probably, you probably know his work. He's, he's makes, uh, he's kind of similar in his approach to his work. He makes not just bags, but he makes a lot of other things too. Um, he does, uh, He's a, he's a member of the uh, the American Mountain Man Association, I think it's called. Okay. Um, I forget the full uh, full organization name, but um, he's a he's a member of that, and he organized. Um, he lives out in Missouri, and he organized like uh, like a riverboat trip where him and you know three four other guys will they'll pack guns and just period gear only and you know limited food and they'll do like a week-long canoe trip or a boat trip and they you know they really have to hunt everything they eat and uh, start fires is what they have and uh you know that's always really fun to hear the stories of it and just the fact that somebody is doing that you know yeah um another guy eli you know eli Froage. yes yes we um, had him on for an episode Another super talented artist, one of my favorites. He does stuff like that too. You know, he does, uh, you know, squirrel camps where just him and four guys will camp in, 
you know, the dead of winter, freezing, and live off squirrels for a week, you know, and carry yeah. the tire and using, you know, starting a fire with nothing but a striker, you know, or you know, and a flint. That's 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 really cool. I love watching people do stuff like that. I love uh, I love anything like that, you know, hardcore physical activity that people are doing of all types. That's kind of always uh, I always love to see that. I wish I could do stuff like that if I had the. I mean, I probably could. I just, you know, I need to, I need would like to start doing stuff like that. It's just tough. Yeah. There's always, um, there's always a lot of time. stuff that gets in the way. Yeah. Yeah. There's not too many people who are doing it too. And I'm, I'm, I'm really not a living history person. So I don't really okay. have, you know, I don't have like an outfit or gear, you know, I don't, I don't really do any of that. That's like a whole different thing that I, I really am not into. So it would be, kind of tough to start that out of nowhere too but right um we'll see but it's I, I do like to watch people do anything like that like you say just get off the couch do stuff do cool stuff it's well outside the norm yeah definitely well to to kind of wrap things up here we've had you on for a long time now i don't want to take too much away from your day are there any um any resources out there that you would point somebody to that was interested in the kind of work that you do or interested in getting started and making, you know, traditional bags the way you do? I would definitely recommend the uh, Contemporary Makers blog, as we mentioned a few times, um, and the, the, especially the search feature of it. You can search for things that, uh, keywords that interest you, and, you know, not only modern makers, but there's a lot of antique bags and uh, antiques to other stuff in their, uh, in their collection that you can look at. I, uh, I definitely recommend going to events like Dixon's or the CLA show or any other shows like that whenever possible. Um, make, make it like an annual trip you do or once in a while kind of like Mecca kind of thing, you know, if you can. Um, just, you know, seeking out antique bags wherever you can, studying them, but looking at them with an open mind. Don't, you know, that, that's kind of the key thing I would recommend to anyone. Just keep an open mind, you know, don't, don't worry about where you think the bag came from if somebody says, well, this bag is from Pennsylvania. And you know what? Don't even think about that. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about what kind of bag your ancestor might have had or any of that kind of stuff. You know, just just uh, relax and enjoy it and keep an open mind. That's really the best thing I could tell you. And and definitely, you know, look, talk to existing artists that you admire and uh, look at their work and, uh, that's pretty much it. There's a few books out there that um, most people know about, but if you don't know about, they're a good kind of a good place to start. Um, obviously, I mentioned a book by Madison Grant. That's kind of a book you want to look at with a grain of salt, but it's still a fun book for bag makers just because of all the pictures in it. Um, a good place to start is a book called Recreating the 18th Century Hunting Pouch by uh, T.C. Albert. That's kind oh, of yeah. like... If you if you've never picked up a piece of leather before and have no idea where to start, that book is great. Um, it's just basic leather leather working skills that can take you from making a simple hunting bag from A to Z. And he's got a bunch of really good pictures in the back of antique bags. Um, so there's a few others out there. You're, you know, uh, Jim Webb has a book that's a lot of fun. Um, if you if you don't know who Jim Webb is, I would look at his work on the CLA page. He's a, uh, he's kind of like a authority, I guess, on 
Appalachian lore and uh, antiques, and he's at the CLA show every year. Um, he's a really he's a great resource. So people will go out to his place. I don't want to tell people to start going to his house or anything, but um, <laughs> you know he's he's a great resource. People have told me they've gone out to his house and looked at a million things out there. But, you know that's where you got to get to with like find people who have collections who are eager to share share them. You know knowledge as well. You know that's that's really that's really the best resources is other people. I would say. That's great. Thank you very much for sharing that. That's no problem. No I'm problem. excited Anytime. to go pull these books off the shelf and kind of dive into them some today myself. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And then I always like to give everybody a chance to kind of plug what they're doing or where people can find them, you know, so anything that you want to draw somebody's attention to, you know, feel free to kind of drop that in here, you know, your, your Instagram and things, anything you want to promote. This is kind of your time to, to share that. All right, uh, you can you can find my work um, on Instagram. Uh, I think my I forgot my my Instagram name. Forest underscore underscore and underscore foul. Forest and foul. You can find my work on on there. Uh, you can find me on Facebook on the uh, various group pages. I, I share a lot of work. I do keep a blog that uh, you can find it. You know. You just, Search Eric Ewing Pouches, you will find my blog. Um, I do update it with each bag I make for people who don't use social media. Um, and of course, you can find me in person at the CLA show or Dixon's. I do seminars usually at Dixon's as well. Um, and that's pretty much it. Otherwise, you can, you know, write me a letter and send me a postcard. I'm all good with that. <laughs> Take it old school. <laughs> Well, yeah, we'll put... fine, whatever. You know? <laughs> I'll put... I might not reply. I get a lot of I get a lot of wacky. Oh, emails. do you? You get a lot of a lot of fan mail. I'll put um, links to your blog and your social media, um, your Instagram and things, in the show notes. So that'll that'll be easy for people to click on and go to. Awesome. So they won't have to write that down. They'll just be able to click and go to that. But I really appreciate you coming on, Eric. Um, this has been a oh, lot of fun. <laughs> Yeah, it was fun. It was fun. I like this kind of thing. We'd like to thank our friends at the Primitive Pursuit Podcast for supporting the show. If you haven't already, be sure to follow the guys at Primitive Pursuit, primitivepursuit.com. They're working on publishing and getting the word out about traditional archery. Um, they have a great, great podcast going and a beautiful social media page where they share not only traditional archery hunting, but just general traditional archery shooting sports and the craft behind traditional archery. Coming up this month, we have a few more guests to bring to you before we get out to the SHOT Show in Las Vegas here at the end of January. But if there's somebody in the muzzleloading, living history, traditional craft world that you'd like to hear from, please shoot us an email at podcast at nmlra.org or get in touch with us on social media, and we'll do what we can to reach out to them. If you'd like to support what we're doing here with the Muzzle Blast podcast or the National Muzzleloading Rifle Association in general, you can find out more about becoming a member at nmlra.org. And if you'd like to join or uh, order some merchandise like our books or T-shirts or anything, use the promo code PODCAST10 to get a discount off of your order. Thank you.